Ben Affleck, if you don't know who he is, he's the guy that plays Batman in the most recent Justice League movie. I think he plays in other things too. When asked about why there are so many superhero movies and people continue to go to see them, he said this, quote, part of the appeal of this genre is wish fulfillment. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all of this? Save us from ourselves. Save us from the consequences of our actions. And save us from people who are evil. End quote. Christmas is the time of year that reminds us that the hero the hero that Affleck has hoped for, wished for, has indeed come. It's the time of year that we are reminded someone has come to save us from all of this, to save us from the consequences of our actions, to save us from people who are evil, to save us from our own evil. Christmas is about God doing the impossible. That's our main idea this morning, is that nothing is impossible with God. And I'm going to exhort you to respond to God's miraculous gospel with faith. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. I know many of you are disappointed we are not still in Malachi during the Christmas season, but we'll pick up where we left off. Don't worry. But we are in Luke chapter 1, and we'll cover verses 26 through 38. Now, this section, primarily the spotlight of all of Luke, and especially his first couple chapters, the spotlight is primarily... that he is special, and we're going to bring attention to that. But what I would like to do is bring out kind of a subordinate theme in the text this morning. And so we're going to be considering and spending a lot of time on the person of Mary and what it was like for her to receive this glorious announcement from an angel. We'll see ultimately uh, that her faith is a model for all who would want to follow this great king who was to be born from her womb. So with that in mind, Uh, We will walk through the outline you have on your insert. We'll see a miraculous encounter, a miraculous promise, the miraculous God, and Mary's miraculous response. The whole thing is miraculous. Let's pray, and we'll get into the text together. Father, (laughs) we are a broken people a blemishful people. Uh, We are an evil people. And we come here broken, some of us begrudging. We come here as thirsty people looking for a drink in the desert. We encounter so many issues throughout the week deal with so many relationships, so much hardship. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to gather here. But God, we 
we've come. We've come. And we implore you to speak to us once more in your word, to encourage us, to remind us of your grace and of your steadfast love, which does not fail despite our brokenness. To remind us that we are acceptable to you and loved by you, not because of our perfection, but because of the perfection of Christ, who was crucified in our place for our sins. That you love us because of Christ, who didn't stay dead, but broke the chains of death through resurrection. God, he is our hope this morning. God, you are our hope this morning, and we just ask, ask that we would feel in this familiar text in an unfamiliar way. Help us to see and taste that you are good. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke opens up and he tells us that he's writing to Theophilus. We don't know if this is a person or a group of people, a pseudonym, but he's writing to Theophilus so that Theophilus can have certainty concerning all the events, these things that have happened in time and space. The events to which Luke is referring, giving Theophilus certainty to, are the events surrounding the person and work of Jesus. He wants to write Theophilus so that Theophilus can know the truth about Jesus, about his life, about his teaching, about his death, and about his resurrection. And so what we would expect is Luke to open his gospel with Jesus, but he goes back even further than that. He gives us an account of the birth of John the Baptist. It's an unusual set of circumstances that bring about John's birth, his His father making an announcement. Elizabeth is going to be pregnant and your son is going to be great. Now go home and have some fun. Zechariah doesn't believe right away. So the angel silences his mouth until the time of nine months has passed and a child is born to his wife. But that story gets interrupted. We see that Zechariah is silent and Elizabeth has become pregnant. She's keeping herself in seclusion, you can see in verse 24. She did so for five months. And then she says, The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Her, her disgrace would have been her barrenness. To be godly people without children would make people scratch their heads and think, what are they doing wrong? What is their sin? It was a disgrace to be someone from a priestly family like Elizabeth, married to a priest in the temple, and to not have the blessing of children in one's life. And yet she says, the Lord has taken away my disgrace. He's been gracious to me or favorable to me. Of Jesus' birth on us. It's going to set the stage up for us a little bit. And in verse 26 we read, In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name 
was Mary. And so a couple things are going on here, what Luke wants us to see. He's going to show us a, another miraculous birth announcement of another miraculous birth. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, remember her husband, Zechariah, had an angel appear to him in a temple. He was a priest in the temple. Now, this same angel is going to show up not to somebody as important as a priest, not in a place as important as the temple, but in an insignificant backwoods town called Nazareth in Galilee to an insignificant virgin girl. God loves to use insignificant people to show his greatness to the world. Right? To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph, to the house of, who was of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. He's, viola- violating. He's highlighting her chastity in order to bring out the unexpected and impossible nature of her coming pregnancy. Her conception will be divine. So the angel shows up to Mary and says this. The angel came to her and said, verse 28, Greetings, favored woman! The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, angels in the Bible are not chubby-faced, squishy, like kind of cuddly little things, right? We kind of have that vision of them for whatever reason, for the little precious moments, porcelain dolls. Angels are so cute. If they were going to be more accurate, uh, they would have them with like swords in their hands and blood on the edge of the sword because... Angels are part of the hosts or the armies that God is the Lord of. They're scary. Zechariah, certainly, we read, was overwhelmed with fear when the angel appeared to him. And Mary is is fearful, too. I don't know that she's any braver than Zechariah. But notice, she's not troubled by this showing up of an angel. Look at this, what, what bothers Mary. Verse 29, the greeting. She was deeply troubled by this statement. Wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Well, what's causing Mary, in in the words here, kind of means to to contemplate, to think about, she's curious, what's going on here is this greeting that she receives. But what's, what's weird about this greeting? She's told that she is favored and that the Lord is with her. Why would that trouble her? I think it's because Mary didn't grow up here with us in the West, hearing her whole life, God loves you and he, he wants to walk with you. I think she had a deeper understanding, a better understanding of God's holiness and her sin. And so the idea of God being with her was troubling. Because when sin...
but she hears that she's, she's favored. She's troubled by it. She's, she's troubled by the grace of God. She's uh, amazed by it. I wonder, are you amazed by the grace of God? Or Mary's going, why me at this point? I, I don't have any social or political clout. I'm not really important at all. I don't live in an important place. Like, I'm just planning on getting married to this guy named Joseph. Why, why would God love and favor me? I think we ought to have the same perspective towards our faith. Me? A Christian? I know, it's unbelievable that we should be surprised by God's grace in our lives, that he would show us favor rather than wrath. It should almost trouble us. Tim Keller writes, I would go so far as to say that a perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. What is Christianity? If you think Christianity is is mainly about going to church, believing a certain creed, and living a certain kind of life, then there will be no note of power and surprise about the fact that you are a believer. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? If you believe Christianity this way, you'll say, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. Why do you ask? But that's not Christianity. Christianity in this view is is something that's done by you. So there's no astonishment about being a Christian. If Christianity is something not done by you, but done for you and to you and in you, then there will be a constant note of surprise and wonder. We do not earn the grace of God. Mary is a sinful person. Doesn't do anything to get Gabriel to show up to her. She's going about her life and God interrupts it. And he says, I have favored you. And I am going to use your life. And friends, to each and every person who has followed Christ, each and every person who has put their faith in God since then, he he has said the same thing. I have favored you, and I have important stuff that I'm going to do in your life. Ephesians 2, 8, really famous verse, right? For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And then verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before time for us to walk in, or for us to do. Friends, I know you might feel insignificant, But God has shown you grace. If you are a Christian, He's called you to Himself. And He has some stuff for you to do in this life. 
for your own good and for His glory. If you're not a Christian, just by virtue of you hearing the gospel this morning, you've been shown an extraordinary level of grace. You've been able to hear, and you will be able to hear further, the truth that, that Jesus died for you and that he rose from the dead so that you don't have to die underneath God's wrath for all eternity. That's what you deserve. And you, you know it to be true if you think about your life and how imperfect you are and the evil things you've done. You don't get what you deserve when you put your faith in Jesus. You get what he deserves. You get Jesus' eternal blessing rather than your eternal curse. That's what trusting in Christ is. It's what it means to receive the grace of God is to turn from your sin and to start following God. Rejoicing in the salvation that He has brought to you. Rejoicing in the truth that someone has come to save you from all of this. Mary is considering grace, and she goes, why would I be favored? And then the second part of that question is, well, what does God want to do in my life? That's what's rolling around in her head. And the angel tells her, don't be afraid, and then says in verse 31, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So let's outline the different aspects of this promise. She's told, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. Jesus is the equivalent of Joshua in Hebrew. It means the Lord is salvation. You're also, he's going to be great. Okay, I'm with you so far. Great son, the Lord is salvation, got it. And he will be called the son of the Most High. Most High is just another way of showing God's supremacy. It's calling him the son of God, which Luke will do more explicitly in a moment. Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He's going to be a king. He will reign over the house of Jacob, house of Israel, forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This angel shows up and says, Mary, you are going to become pregnant with the Son of God, Son of the Most High, and he is going to be the king over all kings. He's going to sit the Davidic throne and his kingdom will have no end. He's going to rule forever. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that the Old Testament is looking forward to this Messiah who will come and kind of restore Israel's fortunes. Throw off the Roman yoke, reestablish the monarchy in Israel, and show God's name to be great among the nations. That's what they're waiting for. And God's, he's going to do that, but not quite in the way they expect. Jesus will indeed be a king. He will indeed sit the throne of David But the way that Mary kind of expects this to happen isn't how it's going to go down. And and notice that she's given these promises, but she's not not privy to any of the details. 
Like, she has, she has no idea about the suffering through which Jesus is going to go in order to sit that throne. She has no idea about the cross. She doesn't know. She doesn't know how a prophet is soon going to tell her that Jesus' life is going to be as a sword piercing her own soul. She doesn't have these details, but she doesn't ask for them. Now, she's going to ask for some details in a second, but we'll get that. She Already at this point, her disposition, her posture is that of belief. It's weird, I think, in life that there is perhaps no other area aside from our spirituality that we demand to have all the details, right? Like, when it comes to God and salvation, we, we kind of say, God, we deserve to know all the mysteries of your universe before I'll put my faith in you. But when it comes to the user agreement that shows up on our cell phone or on your new computer, I don't need to know any of that. Of course, except. When it comes to uh, picking up a prescription at the pharmacy, I don't need to know the details about what got put together and got put into this pill thing or even read the little booklet that comes with it. I'm just picking it up and taking it. I don't ask for all the details there. Don't ask for all the details when you go over to somebody's house to have dinner, right? What did you put in there? I mean, maybe you ask if you like the recipe, but you're not going precisely. Walk me through the steps of preparation here. Why not? Is it because the details are unimportant? I don't think so. I think it's because you have good reason to trust the process there. You have good reason to, to trust uh, those people. So the user agreement comes up and you click accept and you go, I have faith in this company that they've given me a good product and that accepting this user agreement is not going to do me too much harm. And you put your faith in them. <laughs> that might not be a good thing, you know, but, but you trust them. Or you go to the pharmacist. You trust the pharmacist. You have good reason to trust the pharmacist to give you the drugs that have been prescribed to you by your physician. You go to your friend's house you don't ask them about all the details of their cooking, because that would be rude. And because you trust them, you have good reason to believe that they're not poisoning you. See, faith is not, it's not ignorance. Right? I'm, not, I'm not saying, and I'm not standing up here and saying, just, just believe in Jesus, like you might Santa Claus. Like, it's not true, but just, just believe. It'll help you live a better life. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, a, the gospel is true, and B, that there are good reasons to believe that it's true. But when you put your faith in something, what you're doing, and I put it on your outline to make sure I worded it right myself, is you're trusting in what you know to be true because you have reason to believe it's true. So what I say to put your faith in Jesus, what I'm saying is trust in Christ because it's true and there are good reasons to believe that it's true. Now, you don't have every reason to believe it's true. You don't have all the details about all the workings of God in the universe. But you do have a, a crucified Messiah who rose from the dead. Like, again, Jesus died and rose and lived in time and in space. You have the resurrection of Christ. You, you have the scriptures in front of you. There are plenty of really good reasons to trust in Jesus. 
Mary doesn't have all the details about how this pregnancy is going to go. But she does have one question, and I think it's a good one. Mary asks the angel, How can this be since I have not had sexual relationship with a man? And the angel answered, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Wait a minute, that was Zechariah. So why does Zechariah have to basically shut up for nine plus months when he asks a question? But Mary, she's going to get a response. What's the difference between their questions? I think it's this. I should probably look at Zechariah's question here to find it. In verse 18, Zechariah says, How can I know this? Right? He's got an announcement. He tells him John the Baptist is going to be great. And Zechariah says, How can I know this? I'm old, and my wife is old. This is a question I think more of, you're an angel, you're making a proclamation to me, but that's not quite enough. I need a, a sign to know that this is going to happen. And Zechariah says, or Zechariah, Gabriel says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're not going to be able to talk. Good? Good. Mary asks, how can this be since I have not had sexual relationship with a man? And her question is not so much, God, can you do this or will you do this or give me a sign so, so I can know you're going to do this, but how are you going to do this? Right? She said, Gabriel, I don't know if you know how this whole baby thing works, but there's a problem here. Remember a couple verses ago, I'm a virgin. It's a good question. It's funny. I, I almost, like when I think put myself in Mary's shoes, I I get a little sarcastic with how I might have responded to this. Like with the question, I would have probably asked the same question, but then gone like, you know, so I'm going to become pregnant with the Son of God, and He's going to live forever, and I am a virgin. Okay, <laughs> sounds great. I know you're an angel, but come on. I think that's typical. Like that's typical of my posture towards the miraculous, or even towards things that God has said He's going to do. Somewhere along the line, I have invited cynicism and unbelief to take up residence in my house. My posture is skepticism rather than faith in the God who has given me good reason to trust him. And so I do kind of marvel at her question here with the confidence of, okay, it's going to happen, but how? God is worthy of our faith, of our trust. She asks how, excuse me, she asks how, and Gabriel replies to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month of her pregnancy for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. What does this mean that Mary will be overshadowed? I want to point out there's nothing sexual in nature going on here. You can get it confused with some Greek mythology if you read it that way. But, but the word that's used here for overshadow uh, throughout the Old Testament is used to give description to the Shekinah glory cloud of God's presence that rests upon the temple. It's used in the New Testament in Luke 9 of God's cloud of glory surrounding Jesus and those who are with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is a way of describing God's powerful presence. God's presence is going to rest on Mary, and he's going to create life where there is not life. He's going to create a man without sin. This is really important. Because if, if Jesus has a human father, then he's not sinless. And that kind of debunks our whole Christianity deal. The virgin birth is a fundamental belief of Christianity. And the only rebuttal for why it would not happen is that it's impossible. But we serve a God who does the impossible. going to overshadow her. She's going to become pregnant, and the one born will be called the Son of God. This is interesting for uh, quite a few reasons, one of which is if you look ahead into chapter 3, verse, there it is, 38, if you look before that, there's this long list, a genealogy, and let me just read parts of it to you. I'll start in 34. Son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Naor, son of Sarug. I'm going to skip some of these names I can't pronounce. We'll go to 37. Son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, Cain, son of Enosh, Son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. I think what Luke is doing by designating Jesus specifically as son of God here and then bringing up Adam as the son of God in the genealogy is he's showing us that Jesus is going to be a second Adam. We've never seen a person created in the way that, that Jesus is created now. Only once before. Just as God made Adam from the dust, God is going to make Jesus in the womb. And just as Adam's life purchased death and separation from God for all his progeny who have been participating in his evil since that day, 
just as Adam brought death, Jesus, the second Adam, the true and better Adam, will succeed everywhere the first Adam has failed and bring life. He will enter into death and break its chains. He will love God and neighbor perfectly. And he will die. Die for men among whom he walks as a man. And he will resurrect and live and sit the throne of David forever as a man. I mean, does that ever boggle your mind a little bit? Quick uh, Trinitarian theology here. Like, Jesus became what he was while never ceasing to be what he was. So he's always happy eternally in God the Trinity. God is God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. And then God the Son, Jesus, takes on flesh and is a person. This is kind of boggle the mind here, so if you don't get it, it's okay. Uh, if you can think of a little Venn diagram, and like you have God as the circle, and then you just have like this little person kind of drawn in there as part of it, like God the Son, like next to it. Jesus never ceases to be God, but becomes a man. And so quite literally, he can be two places at once. He's got two natures. Because he's got two natures, he's fully God and fully man. That kind of rabbit trail aside, what I want to draw your attention to is that, that Jesus, God, when he takes on flesh, he never stops being a man. You understand that? It would be tantamount to you saying, I, you, know, you created a worm farm, and you need to save the worms, and so in order to save the worms, you have to become a worm and stay a worm forever. Now, you understand that Jesus doesn't stop being a man? Not even, like he's resurrected and seated at the right hand of God in the heavens. But he never stops being a person. This is how much God has loved you. That he came to make right what you screwed up. Jesus is the, the true and better Adam. And, and that's not completely explicit in Luke here. It is explicit in the rest of the theology of the New Testament. I'll just point you to 1 Corinthians 15 since we were there recently. Uh, and I'll read you verse 20 through 21. 22, sorry. Uh, As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It's all those who will put their faith in Him. Mary is told of the greatness of Jesus. And just in case she wanted a sign like Zechariah did, he gives her verse 36. He says, Consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then we read, just jump down to verse 39 for a second. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country called Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. 
When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And so, even though Mary believes and has faith in the promise of God, and she's going to make that more explicit in verse 38, she's still, in response to Gabriel saying, so you can know that this is true and that God does the impossible, your relative, your cousin Elizabeth, she's, been, she's old, she's been barren her whole life, she's going to have a baby, go check it out. And Mary says, hey, I'm the Lord's servant. And then she takes off, in verse 39, she hurries to make sure it's true to verify Gabriel's words to her. She believes them, but she's getting some, some extra belief. And she shows up, and before she can even say, I'm pregnant, you know, I don't think that's how she greeted Elizabeth ever, anyway. Maybe it was. But she's like, hey, girl. That, that's how girls talk back then, I bet. Uh, but Elizabeth says, you greeted me. Like, she comes out, what is she's like, can you imagine your relative saying this to you? You're like, hey, what's up? Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. Like, how'd you even know I was pregnant? I didn't know this until Chelsea got pregnant the first time with Elliot, uh, that you can be pregnant as a girl and like not know it, right? And because we had a wager, and I, I bet her that she was pregnant, and she bet that she wasn't, and I won. Um, it was awesome. But I just go, like, Mary probably knows that she's pregnant at this point. You probably recognize when God overshadows you, but she hasn't told anyone. And it's really neat to see God reveals this to Elizabeth. And in John the Baptist leaps within her uterus, and she blesses Mary and is filled with the Holy Spirit and knows this and blesses Mary, encourages Mary in her faith. And I just, we all kind of need an Elizabeth to encourage us. When we're walking in the works that God has called us to, we, we need someone to come alongside of us and say, you have been shown favor by God. You, you've been blessed. Keep on. I feel like Mary believes. But as John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus, even in the womb, with his leaping, I feel like this puts some rebar in that faith that confirms the sign that Gabriel had given to her. He said, Elizabeth's going to be pregnant. She shows up. Elizabeth is not only pregnant, but she says the same thing to her that, that Gabriel did. You're going to give birth to the Lord. It's incredible. It's enough to send Mary into song in the next few verses. This is 46 down through 56. That's another sermon, though. She burst into song there. God is working in her life. He's confirming her faith. Giving her more and more reason to believe and to trust Him. And if you follow God for any amount of time, you know you go through seasons where your faith isn't quite as strong. But time and again, God will come and bolster that faith. Reassure you of Himself. Because He's good.
Verse 37, nothing is impossible with God, Gabriel tells her. And Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And Gabriel leaves. I think too often we are too ready to dismiss the idea of God doing anything impossible in our lives. He does. He's at work. Just the nature of your conversion is evidence of God doing the impossible in you. It's evidence of him putting life where there was death. But even so, putting myself in Mary's shoes, this grand announcement, I don't know that my immediate response would be, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. I feel like I might have some hesitations. Like, like, think about it for a second. Mary is a young virgin girl. She's engaged. Like, she's got a life. She's got plans. I might respond if I were in her shoes like, look, Gabriel, this sounds great, but not right now. I've got some stuff. I'm planning a wedding. You know how these things can be. I, I also, I, I have dreams that I need to chase. I'm going to go to college. I've got a career that I want to live out. And, I, you know, I've, I'm really wise. I started investing early, and I've got a retirement I want to live. This is, this is my life. You can't have it. This is my life, not right now. I have to follow my heart after my dream. It's the only way I can be happy. Think about it. Christmas really does ruin Mary's life. Christmas wrecks Mary's life and invites her to live the life God's called her to. It invites her into the life of Christ. And Christmas must do the same thing to you if it's going to mean anything. It must wreck your life and cause you to start living a life dedicated to Christ, if it is to have any meaning to you. Because, friends, just as Mary could have put this off and said, God, after college, after my career, after my retirement, so too do so many people, even some that call themselves Christians, dismiss God and say, not right now. God, I can't attend church regularly right now because I watch football on Sundays. God, I, I, I can't give you 10 minutes of my morning in prayer and in reading of the scriptures because I'm just too busy. The translation is, these other things are more important to me than obedience to you. This is my life, hands off. The problem is, God's grace rarely works according to our schedules. No, God interrupts, and he does the impossible. But in doing the impossible, he requires your calendar. To follow Jesus, you have to hand over your calendar. You have to hand over your career you have to hand over your retirement. You have to hand over your life. 
You have to put your faith in Jesus. Where are you at on that? Are you, even as you sit regularly here, still clinging to the remnants of your old life? Not now, God. I'm following you, but not there, not now, not yet. I will when things settle down a little bit. Or have you let go and said, God, you you did the impossible. You raised Jesus from the dead. You've given me spiritual life. You've shown me grace. I can trust you with my Sunday morning. I can trust you with a few minutes. I can trust you with it all. You loved me enough to die for me. Pretty good reason to put my faith in you. Friends, Christmas will not bring you comfort and joy until you understand it in light of the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Christ and your own crucifixion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What he means is die to your old way of life. He means the same thing that Jesus meant when he said in Luke 9, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Or will, yeah, will save it. Have you died? Or are you still clinging to your old way of life? Christmas must ruin everything for you before it can mean anything to you. It's not about warm, fuzzy feelings and sentimentalism. It's about God's declaration of war on our sin and His commitment to saving us. Christmas is the origin story of the true hero we all long for. It's the beginning of the story of Jesus who comes to save us from all of this. To save us from ourselves. To save us from the consequences of our actions. To save us from people who are evil. Save us from evil entirely. It's the story of God doing the impossible. And friends, it's a great encouragement to you that he's going to continue doing the impossible. He did the impossible when he spoke the world into being. He did the impossible when he created man. He did the impossible when instead of destroying all of mankind, he allowed mankind to continue to exist. He did the impossible when he inhabited the womb of a virgin, was born as a man, 
and lived a perfect life. He did the impossible when he went to the cross and died for all the sins of all who would put their faith in him. He did the impossible when he burst forth from the grave after three days. He's done the impossible in calling you to himself. He continues to do the impossible as he calls more and more people to himself. And he will do the impossible when he raises all from the dead, vanquishes all evil, and sits the throne of David forever. He will continue doing the impossible through all of eternity because that is what God does. Can't is not a category with God. Impossible does not exist with him. Friends, he's worthy of your trust. And so it's Christmas time. It's a call to you to repent, to find true comfort in joy in Christ. So respond to God's miracle with faith. Got good reason to believe it's true. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Son who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the grave in order to prove his person and his power to give us excellent reason for putting our faith in him so that we can be made like him and one day rise from the dead and live forever in your presence, feasting with one another, enjoying that great celebration where the food never runs out and the glass never runs dry. God, we praise you this morning for this great hope that is within us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for coming to us in the most humiliating of ways, as a helpless baby, born of an insignificant virgin girl. It's amazing. Thank you.